listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are here to delve into topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. I'm Michelle. And I'm Larissa. And we'll be your hosts for this half an hour of library-centric radio. Thanks for tuning in. On each episode of Shout for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. This is our last episode of 2017 before we take off for the winter holidays. In that vein, we asked our whole crew what they'll be doing with their spare time. Libraries today carry a wide variety of mediums and genres for both entertainment and educational purposes, so we have a little something for everyone. No matter what your tastes are, we've got something for you today. From fashion TV shows to cybersecurity podcasts, let's hear what the Shout crew have on hold. We'll start with Gabriella Montagna's review of a, well, an interesting Edmonton-based film. Perhaps you've seen it, Christmas in Wonderland. Have you ever wondered what a holiday comedy film would be like starring Patrick Swayze as a struggling father, Chris Kattan and Carmen Electra as thieves, and Tim Curry as an RCMP officer with an inexplicable Scottish accent, and what basically equates to an hour and 40-minute ad for West Edmonton Mall? Well, director James Orr has your obscure needs covered in his 2007 feature film, A Christmas in Wonderland. Since its release, the film has gained somewhat of a cult following in Edmonton due to the predominant set location being West Edmonton Mall, the seemingly random casting, and the so-bad-it's-good comedy aspect. Director James Orr has a fairly extensive career writing and directing multiple films including Sister Act and Follow the Bride, and was given an undisclosed production budget for this project. The film had a limited release in Canada and the US, and, oddly enough, a release in Russia and the Ukraine, initially only making about $772,000 in the box office. The film, although widely disliked by critics, is somewhat of a fan favorite in Edmonton, which has even led to live screenings of the film at the now unfortunately gone Wonder Bar. The film follows Wayne Saunders, played by the late Patrick Swayze, and his three children, who recently made the move from Los Angeles to Edmonton and are having difficulty adjusting to their new city. The family decides to go to West Edmonton Mall to do some holiday shopping, where the kids inadvertently find a bag filled with counterfeit money, which belongs to a group of three thieves, played by Chris Kattan, Carmen Electra, and Preston Lacey. This allows for the real plot of the movie to begin, as the thieves attempt to catch the kids spending their fake money. What follows is a slapstick chase throughout the mall, with multiple over-the-top scenes, such as Chris Kattan falling into a shark tank, a motorbike race through the mall, Carmel Lecture being taken on a flight of stairs by ping-pong balls, and a subplot about a man who may or not, may not be Santa Claus or the West Edmonton Mall ghost. The film eventually ends with the thieves being caught as Carmen Lecture's character ends up dangling from the roof above the sea lion performance area, spilling the money everywhere, and the Saunders family learns a valuable lesson about the importance of sticking together through the holidays. While I think several of the film actors were well casted, particularly Chris Kattan, others seemed to give an incredibly underwhelmed performance, such as Matthew Knight playing Patrick Swayze's son, who for some reason talks unlike any child ever would, almost providing a real John Travolta vibe, or incredibly over-the-top performances, such as Tim Curry's RCMP character who has a run-on joke about calling money wallpaper, which leads nowhere. I did really enjoy the scenery of the mall at Christmas, aside from the digitally rendered outside of the mall, which made it look like a casino, and which is also apparently located walking distance from the Sherrod Park Freeway. 
Some of the mall chase scenes went on for a ridiculously long time, and at one point even included a montage of the kids modeling clothes at Gymboree for literally five minutes straight, which caused a loss of interest for myself, and I'm suspecting we lose interest for many children whom the film is partially aimed at. Some of the scene choices were also highly questionable and confusing, often going for charming but coming off as either creepy or tone deaf. For example, a scene that really sticks out to me was where one of the sons opens a doorway at the mall to reveal a gateway to the North Pole, which is actually just terribly CGI'd elves hanging out in a broom closet who don't speak at all and just slowly nod their heads. The door closes and the scene is never spoken about again. In all, I think the film suffers from a very drawn-out plot with several other unnecessary subplots, some questionable acting, and some over-the-top Hallmark cliches, including the overly sweet, soft-spoken, Santa-obsessed youngest daughter. However, the film is harmless and something to be seen, and there were actually a few times I genuinely laughed. As fascinating as Christmas in Wonderland was as a piece of cinema, the lore surrounding its actual filming is somehow even more interesting, with several Reddit users and production members recalling accounts of the cast having late-night parties at the casino where they were staying, and other stories that may be too much for the show, so please check out the user accounts on Reddit Edmonton. While I definitely don't think Christmas in Wonderland deserved the 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, I wouldn't go into the film expecting a cinematic masterpiece. But if you're looking for a fun, campy holiday movie that doesn't revolve around the usual tropes of a holiday romance or losing one's Christmas spirit, this would be a good movie to put on in the background while you're having company over. Definitely worth the watch if you're from Edmonton and want to feel nostalgic about them all. If not, only to view the last performance by late actor Patrick Swayze. Thanks, Gabrielle. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries, a show about librarians and the issues that matter to them on CJSR. This month, we are finding out what the Shout crew have on hold for the holidays. For those of you interested in video games, Emily Kumpf, a Masters of Library and Information Science candidate here at the University of Alberta, has a great game recommendation for you. As much as I like video games and value them as an art form, there are few and far between that I can relate to as a queer person which is why Butterfly Soup is so important to me. In the words of its creator, Brianna Lay, Butterfly Soup is a visual novel about gay Asian girls playing baseball and falling in love. Lay tells the story of four teenagers, Dia, Minseo, Akarsha, and Noel, as they navigate their lives as high school students in Oakland, California, against the backdrop of the 2008 presidential campaign and the vote on Proposition 8, an amendment to ban gay marriage in the state's constitution. The game features beautiful art, along with jokes, memes, and even library-related shenanigans. But Lay doesn't shy away from teenage struggles. Each of the main characters experiences their own trauma, social anxiety, suicidal ideation, emotional and physical abuse from parents, as well as shared struggles against sexism, racism, and homophobia. The game addresses these issues in a thoughtful manner, not as fodder for melodrama or shock. There are no bad endings to this game, no wrong choices, and no dead lesbians. Butterfly Soup is an overwhelmingly hopeful and heartfelt story. The game is available on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Get it for free on itch.io or support Brianna Lay by spending $5 US for a bonus art book. The link to the game will be provided in our social media. I think that covers all the bases. I hope you enjoy. Thanks, Emily. Next up, we have Chris's recommendations for materials that will keep you up to date on cybersecurity. Let's hear it, Chris. Now, sadly, my idea of holiday fun is getting fired up about policy issues, which, you know, probably makes sense for a guy who loves getting socks and underwear for Christmas. But hear me out. 
because 2017 has been a year full of news about privacy breaches. Equifax, Uber, Verizon, eBay, Yahoo, even Chipotle and Arby's were in the news because they were all hacked or lost control of people's accounts and data. Now, thanks to the fake news debate, there has also been a lot of discussion about what big sites like Google and Facebook know about you and how they use that information to decide what ads you see and which friends' updates are visible. Google and Amazon are eager to sell you devices that sit in your house and listen to everything you say in case you want to know what the weather is like or if you want to buy something online, especially the buying part. And perhaps closer to home for most of us, um, CBC Marketplace did an investigation this fall into how prices for online goods and services might vary depending on who you are, what devices you use, and where you live. I mean, all of this is almost enough to make anyone want to invest in tinfoil hats and get off the internet forever. And as someone who cares a great deal about issues of online security and privacy and surveillance, people often ask me, where do I start if I want to learn more about this stuff? So the good news is that there are some really terrific podcasts that take on these issues from the perspective of real human beings, not IT experts. And I say that as a reformed IT expert myself. And these podcasts, they, they do it in a very entertaining and engaging way. So I have a few podcast episodes I'd like to recommend to you, including a, a really awesome five-day experiment that was created by one of my favorite shows. So the first one, uh, I've always been a fan of Nora Young's show on CBC, Spark, which is available as a podcast, uh, because it examines technology from the perspective of its impact on people's lives. The team at Spark, they, they go beyond typical IT news by explaining why these issues matter. Some recent stories they've done about privacy might be of interest to you. If you look in their archives at the CBC Spark website, you'll see that the November 26, 2017 episode takes a tour of a Cold War museum and actually thinks about what the surveillance technologies of that time can actually tell us about the technologies that are being used today and how they might affect us. And there was an episode from December 3rd this year that took a look at how modern ad agencies are using big data to target people more precisely. So instead of just saying, here's a demographic, they can actually slice people and target them very specifically with ads. Another really fantastic podcast is called Reply All, which is produced by a startup media company called Gimlet. The two hosts, PJ Vote and Alex Goldman, are like a bridge between the real world and the uh, complex online universe of leet speak and dank memes. Plus, they both have uh, very addictive laughs, and I love hearing them giggle on the podcast. Um, for example, the two of them, they regularly feature a segment on their show called Yes, Yes, No, where they take usually a really cryptic tweet <laughs> to their producer to see if he can understand it. And then they pick it apart to explain where all of the bits and pieces came from. It's a really interesting deep dive into strange, dark corners of internet culture. Reply all wallows in like internet myth making. And they've naturally, as a result of that, been growingly concerned with online privacy and security. And if you're new to the show, um, I strongly recommend episode 109 from a couple months ago, where the team hears a complaint from somebody who's convinced that Facebook is recording everything he says to offer him advertisements. And so what they do is they take his uh, examples of things that he said have happened and they look into them to see if they can verify uh, other ways that Facebook might be figuring out uh, how to target ads. I promise the investigation will surprise you and it's well worth a listen. 
But the absolute top of my list is a podcast from WNYC Studios called Note to Self. The host, uh, Manoush Zamarodi, uses the same approach to her show that Nora Young does with uh, CBC Spark in Canada. But Note to Self has done a lot of really interesting work on privacy and surveillance this year. And one of the projects the show built this year is called The Privacy Paradox. You can Google uh, Note to Self Privacy Paradox. It'll pop up right away. It's well worth a listen. It's basically a project that you sign up with your email address. And what the site will do uh, is send you over the course of five days basically a little short course on privacy, uh, including a short audio episode for each day and some exercises that are all designed to give you a better awareness of online data tracking, how you can, can, can take control of it, um, if that is that you want to. <laughs> really what it's about is sort of figuring out where you stand on the spectrum of privacy and uh, figuring out what to do next with that. Um, while I would really happily recommend Spark, uh, reply all or note to self anyone because of their general coverage of uh, technology's impacts on society. If you're looking for something really easy, light, and understandable in terms of an explanation of on-brand privacy, give yourself the gift of the privacy paradox for Christmas. It's free and uh, you're going to love it. And those are my recommendations for holiday listening. See, policy stuff can be fun. There's no reason why you can't have fun with policy. Socks and underwear, when you're older, you appreciate them more. And I think I can say the same thing about uh, privacy and surveillance. Merry Christmas. That was Chris's cybersecurity recommendation. If you'd like a list of our reviews and recommendations from the show, they'll be posted on our Facebook page at Shout for Libraries. If you want updates on the program, you can also find us on Twitter under Shout the number four and Libraries. For those of you who use the holidays to catch up on the shows you missed while you were busy during the year, Corey and Kendra have you covered. Let's find out what show they've put on their hold shelf. So I literally put Project Runway uh, on hold at the library and have been watching the seasons non-sequentially uh, for about a year now, but had to take a break during the semester. But I think that uh, Project Runway actually mirrors our experience um, as grad students in ways that allow us to work through like some of those tensions that come up, but also have it not be too identical to the experience that we're going through uh, to make it anxiety-inducing. So I think you get together, you get all these like incredibly talented people together who have similar but very different skills and personalities, um, and they form, form this cohort who are there to work on uh, similar projects, but also, you know, differentiate themselves through their work. They are competing against each other, yet they are forced to rely on each other and work together. Um, there is minimal reward um, that they are all fighting for. Um, AKA scholarships and funding. And um, they, you know, they have Tim Gunn, they have the mentorship of um, an academic or a professional in the field who keeps them afloat. And they create these projects and these really short timelines that, you know, don't always work out how they're supposed to or how they want them to. And uh, they're under a ton of pressure sleepless nights. I think a lot of things that us grad students can relate to, but in a, in a way that doesn't feel re-traumatizing, you know, like it, it allows us to sort of work through some of um, those anxieties from a distance. And who doesn't want a supervisor like Tim Gunn? I know, it made me realize that I needed Tim Gunn. Yeah, Tim Gunn? I'd love to be your Tim Gunn. Also, spoiler alert. <laughs> oh yeah, spoiler, spoiler. So this season they had plus-size models introduced so the designers that are used to modeling for a size two body had the challenge of taking measurements from like regular women and curvy women and that was pretty cool and I think in the beginning of the season they emphasized it a lot I'm not sure if that was 
how the producers edited it. But yeah, it was interesting to see that challenge and how they all embraced it really well. And um, I know you really liked Lyris. Lyris, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I mean, even to see the way that the language shifted uh, throughout the semester and how they talked about them. Because in the beginning... The semester, the season? I <laughs> My worlds are too entangled. How they talked about them in the season, because in the beginning it was plus-size models, plus-size models. And then towards the end it was models of all bodies and all shapes and all sizes. And so there wasn't so much this differentiation based on being bigger than what the designers are used to working with. It was like, no, these are bodies. These are all bodies. And they're just all different sized bodies, which I really appreciated. And I think, yeah, in the beginning it was like, oh, this is a biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is me working with a body I've never worked with mm-hmm. before. But at the end, I think that became a huge part of the design was like recognizing that I am making clothes to fit a particular body. And that body actually is going to give me feedback because they're not all this like same form. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what the models were so great with. And especially Lyris, she was so vocal about, you know, the parts of her body she wanted to show off, what she felt good in, like what didn't feel good. And the models were really given a voice in this season, I think. By voice, do you mean the model mirror? Oh, I mean the model mirror. But even the models themselves were um, a client in one of the episodes. And I think that was really great, too. You know, they had the models on the go or whatever it was. And so the models got to bring their own style. They got to choose the designer they wanted to work with. Totally. And then to hear, I think it was either Lyris or Jasmine saying that they wanted their chest shown off. They wanted their curves shown off, which the beginning everyone was just hiding the bodies and making it like look like they were just a rack just holding clothes. I think this was a really important step forward, but I think it's also really important that this not become um, a token season where they right. do this, you know? Like, I think this just has to be the new norm. Yep. So curious to see if they do that. We haven't talked about Kentaro yet. Right. Like, this, the sweetest man. The biggest oh. weirdo. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kentaro. So, again, spoiler alert, one Project Runway, season 16. His collection was based off a piece of music that he composed. And what was the music about? Oh, let me see if I can remember. Uh, It was about finding and burying a dead cat and then listening to the ground under which that cat was buried to gain inspiration for. I'm trying to do my best Tim Gunn impression by just staring yeah. at you. Which, well, is what they, which is what Tim did when he did the house visit, and Kentaro played him this piece of music and explained that. Yeah, it's there, pretty good. You should look it up. There was some silence there. But uh, Kentaro used that piece in his runway show. Um, which featured no dead cats. There were no dead cats. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> um, but the piece was, it was a very minimalist um, piano piece. And, like, silence was featured mm-hmm. greatly in the song. And it, it totally shifted the energy of the runway show. And I'm thinking about what you were saying about connecting it to grad school. Yeah. And in the finale, I think he had given up. Right? Like, he oh, yeah. certainly, like, his brother, Brandon, who I thought was going to win... Not because I liked his clothes, but just how much of an edit he was getting. Yeah. But, yeah, Kentaro certainly didn't think he was winning, didn't care anymore, and was just definitely resigned, which I don't know how you felt at the end of the Oh, semester. yeah. <laughs> just done. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I guess I feel like I'm Kentaro. I really related to him with that. 
And yeah, it's cool that he actually won, which maybe tells us something about how grad school will go. This is Shout for Libraries on CJSR, and that was Corey and Kendra reviewing Project Runway. Will you be watching that over your break, Michelle? Personally, the genre is over my head. I gave up trying to understand fashion a long time ago. Uh, With that in mind, today I'm going to tell you folks about a global phenomenon of a book created by two librarian brothers, which today has been translated into 160 languages and inspired people across the planet to preserve their local folklore for future generations. Yeah, let's talk about Grimm's fairy tales. The Brothers Grimm are near and dear to my heart as fellow lawyers turned librarians. While the stories they collected were not originally meant for children, that's what they're best known as today. In fact, the Disney Corporation owes about half of its body of work to some combination of Perot, Anderson, and the Grimm's doing what they do best and stamping copyright all over the public domain, but that's a rant for another month. Today we're going to look at the historical significance of Grimm's fairy tales and learn why you should give them a read. First, let's get this out of the way. Yeah, it's old, it's famous, and it's related to Germanic culture, so it was used as propaganda during World War II. While folklore was used during the late Romantic period as a tool of identity creation and nation-building, and anti-Semitic tales did exist, I nevertheless find the fascist use confusing, considering that both Grimm's gambled and lost their jobs at one point protesting against a strong-armed ruler who was trying to eliminate the relatively new constitution of Hanover. Nazis being Nazis, however, lacks the ability to perceive the difference between wanting to preserve a fading cultural heritage and, you know, being Nazis. So what's so great about Grimm's fairy tales? Well, one of my favorite things about it is that even though it was written down, it continues to behave in many ways like the oral tradition it collects. During the lifetime of the Grimm's, it went through seven editions. The first two more or less recount the stories as they were told to the Grimm's. Jacob was uneasy about translating the dialects they'd received them in into High German, but that was the biggest change they made. After the second edition, however, they ran hard into the hate mail-inducing problem of having sex and violence in stories that the public had construed as being for children. Each subsequent edition contained edits to make the stories better suited to the times in which they were being told. This meant not just censoring some of the content, but also making the characters more relevant to readers by, for example, changing wayward travelers into down-on-their-luck returning soldiers, a common occurrence towards the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and adding embellished prose and Christian elements to some of the tales. Grimm's fairy tales also exist in many countries via what's known as relay translation, aka a translation that's a translation of a translation. As anyone who's played around with Google Translate for a minute can tell you, this introduces some room for error. Jacob Grimm wasn't even sold on the idea of any translation for a while, feeling that the language a work was created in forms part of the content, and he therefore preferred looser adaptations. In a way, he got his wish. As a result of the broken telephone-style transmission, every language imbued the stories with a unique flavor, making sense of the tales within the culture in which the language was spoken. Yet another super cool phenomenon frequently applied to the Grimm collection is glocalization. This happens when an international story is adapted to suit the local culture into which it's being transmitted. It's also the thing Vincent was talking about in Pulp Fiction when he says a quarter pounder in France is called Royale with cheese due to the French use of the metric system. Grimm's fairy tales has been glocalized so many times that you might not even recognize two retellings of the same story. I mean, Wikipedia has a special page filled with other pages for films based on Cinderella, which doesn't even include stories that mimic the plot without using the name, like Pretty Woman. What's that? Cinderella is a bad example because there were lots of versions of it floating around in a non-Germanic context before the Grimm brothers wrote it down. Ha! Nope! Cinderella is a perfect example because it lets me segue into my next point. The Grimm's initially set out to preserve a dying aspect of their culture and so attempted to keep the tales they collected strictly German, or 
German adjacent, as the United Germany was not yet a twinkle in Otto von Bismarck's eye when they began their work. Still, a number of stories in their first edition were struck from later editions for being too French, like Puss in Boots, or too Mongolian, like the Faithful Animals. As the borders of the country were not yet solidified, the question of what constituted Germanic culture was a difficult one to grapple with, but Cinderella, a story that was told by Charles Perrault more than a hundred years before was arguably as French as Puss in Boots, another story from the Perrault collection. Another version of Cinderella was published almost 70 years before that in Italy, and before that one was recorded in China, one in Vietnam, and one in Greece almost 2,000 years ago. Aside from posing questions about the nature of culture and making Nazis feel even dumber for using these stories as national propaganda, this softens the idea of an original folk or fairy tale and validates Wilhelm Grimm's quest to broaden the audience for his beloved stories by updating them for his time. The first and second editions of Grimm's fairy tales can therefore be read as a snapshot of the zeitgeist that existed before the brothers' journey, and the seventh as a snapshot of the values, ideals, and literary style of the time that they lived. Contrasting these with modern adaptations of their stories allows us to see ourselves more clearly by comparison. That's why I recommend that you read or reread Grimm's fairy tales and check out my other sources for this review. Grimm's Tales Around the Globe, The Dynamics of Their International Reception by Vanessa Jusen, The Forgotten Tales of the Brothers Grimm by Jack Zipes of the Public Domain Review, and How the Grimm Brothers Saved the Fairy Tale, also by Jack Zipes, this time featured in Humanities. Thanks, Michelle. What about you, Larissa? Anything you're looking forward to getting into while you have some time off? Always. Of course, aside from sleeping, that is. So, of course, I've really enjoyed podcasts as a form of media for sharing information. And there's a couple that I'd like to highlight for our listeners. The first is Media Indigenea with Rick Hunt as one of the best ways to catch up on current Indigenous events happening in North America, though primarily Canada. It's even a great way to get caught up on the Indigenous perspective of all those current events that you see in mainstream media. Rick Hunt invites excellent guests on the show, Everyone from Kim Tallbear to other professors who are well-versed in media studies or Indigenous studies, and they all together will discuss important issues facing Canadians and North Americans today, whether Indigenous or non-Indigenous. These discussions are often filled with humor, while being exceptionally informative. Rick Hunt also does a great job trying to summarize the topics they'll be discussing, so even if you haven't heard about the topic before, you can get caught up before delving into the discussion. Personally, I find this a great podcast to listen to on the bus, though I have gotten some funny looks when I started giggling at particularly weighty remarks. If you're looking for a podcast that'll inform you without just being droning voices, this is definitely the podcast for you. It's got a lot of humor, a lot of character, and of course a lot of info. As a bonus, it can even be an act of reconciliation to listen in and learn more about current social issues facing Indigenous people in North America today. Speaking of entertaining podcasts, I'd also like to introduce you to Wooden Overcoats. You heard me, Wooden Overcoats. It's a hilarious podcast about Rudyard Fun and his sister Antigone, who run their family funeral parlor on the island of Piffling. Similar to the humor of Night Vale, it's quirky, it's witty, and it's weird, but in all the best ways. It has characters that are going to endear you to them. And it pretty much covers the bases in terms of genre. There's murder, there's intrigue, there's romance. A little bit of everything for everyone. I really can't say too much about the actual story of it without spoilers. So you're just going to have to trust me that these are characters that you're going to love. Even love to hate. Or even hate to love. It'll make you feel a lot of things for these characters. Sometimes you'll just sit there thinking, 
me too, Rudyard, me too. And all of that is just the experience that you get. In addition, they have an amazing quality of podcast. So it's basically an audiobook level podcast. It's witty and weird. And they also have some additional podcasts that they've put up that are just live action events that they do. So even though the story has actually ended, the season's completed, so you can go ahead and binge watch it this holiday season. They also have some additional material if you're just feeling like, I need another Antigone kick. I do, I do. And there's plenty there for new listeners, listeners who might have heard the first episode or so. Um, either way, I definitely recommend Wooden Overcoats. So now, listeners, if you're just tuning in, this is Shout for Libraries on CJSR. And that's it for today's show, and in fact, the last show of this year. A special thanks to Anoop Perihan, a.k.a. Anoop Scoop, who composed our theme music. We hope you found something for you to put on hold over the holidays. To tell us what you have on hold, you can visit our Facebook page at Shout for Libraries or tell us on Twitter at Shout, the number four, Libraries. Once again, this has been Michelle and Larissa, and we've been your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio. Catch us in the new year for the next episode of Shout for Libraries.